Hey, everybody, welcome to the Rooftop Leadership Podcast, and uh, I'm really, really excited about this episode. I'm excited about every episode that we do, but this one in particular, I'm, I'm, I'm super uh, thrilled about because um, it's an extension of our Afghanistan One Year Later series that we've been doing, and um, I, I recently um, connected uh, with this gentleman that we have on today. He, uh, he had written a, 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 a paper, uh, an article that just hit me right between the running lights. I mean, it was, it was one of the, the more profound pieces uh, that I'd seen in a very, very, very long time. And it was about the, uh, the basically our Afghan war generals uh, being AWOL. And it just, it just floored me because it spoke right to my heart and what so many of the um, NCOs and junior officers that I had interviewed for Operation Pineapple Express were saying as well as where were the generals. And so I, it just Jason started. Jason started appearing in my feed. I started reaching out to him, and 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 in, in the short period of time, I've really had the opportunity to come to know uh, his body of work in a way that is just it's uh, it's super profound. And I'm and, and I feel like one of the roles that we're playing on the Rooftop Podcast right now, in addition to asking people like, "What's your Pineapple Express? What are you doing to mobilize your community to lead when nobody else is coming?" We have an inherent obligation to keep the Afghan story alive, to talk about what's really happening in Afghanistan on so many different levels and using our podcast platform to do that, to repurpose, to push that out. We've had some amazing interviews. Today is certainly not going to be, it, it, is, it is going to probably exceed all of them. Um, and the reason is because of this gentleman that I have on right now, Jason Houck. Um, he is, his back, we're going to put his bio, if you'll let me, we're going to put his bio in the show notes. And I just want you to take a look at it. Um, but I'm going to give you kind of a rooftop version of this thing. Uh, 23 years in the U.S. Army as an infantry and sapper paratrooper right out of the gate. Right. So that that should tell you right there. Uh, he started his work on the Afghanistan problem set in 02. And, and, and was working at a, at a very, very street level. But today is still just as involved, if not more involved. Uh, in particular, if you'll see him uh, leading the charge with the Global Friends of Afghanistan and, and on other powerful thought pieces. But as a collective, I'm really excited about GFA and what they're doing. I think they represent, and we're going to talk more about that towards the end of the podcast. But uh, he started this journey in 02. And now in the in the shadow of the collapse is leading this organization, co-leading this organization known as GFA, Global Friends of Afghanistan. Um, he's operated in Afghanistan, and this is so rare, at the tactical, operational, strategic, national, and international policy levels. You have people that claim to have done that, but when you hear Jason talk about Afghanistan, you'll see what I mean he has. And what I love about Jason and the way he does this is he can toggle. He can toggle from tactical, you know, grassroots level stuff right up to international policy and back down. And that's what we need. We need leaders with that kind of depth and breadth to figure our way out of this shit. Uh, and, and he absolutely can do that. He's been privy to discussions fr from all four presidential administrations prosecuting this war, uh, as well as numerous generals and admirals and, and has, has been thought leaders for them, uh, advisor, and has been in the room when the big discussions happen. Uh, Speaks our Arabic and Dari. Um, he is a Malone Fellow in, in Arabic and Islamic Studies, an accomplished author of five books, including a, a, an amazing book on the Quran, uh, modern English interpretation, and most recently a book 
uh, that I'm cutting through right now, War Options in Afghanistan, where he actually gives you ways to look at that you could prosecute this thing. Talk about crystallizing lessons learned. Um, and just, just cutting edge stuff, man. So uh, if you're not following Jason and you're interested in the Afghan problem set or national security, you should be full stop. And I don't say that lightly. You guys know me. Um, I, I'm very, very judicious about who I, th I think at this point I recommend you follow. And, and, and I, but again, he speaks at the street level with authenticity, but also informed with uh, a level of fidelity at, at strategic policy levels as well. And he can toggle with depth and breadth. So Jason, I know that was a long ass introduction, man, but you deserve it. And I just appreciate everything that you're doing. And it's, it's awesome to have you on, on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me here and uh, the kind introduction. Hopefully I can live up to half of that today. No, I know that you will. And you always do. Um, look, I thought what we might do for, for those dialing in here is, is I, I'd like to kind of it, it follow the old storytelling framework of where we've been, where we are, where we're going, uh, particularly in something as complex and convoluted as, 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 as what's happening with Afghanistan at home and abroad. And so I wonder, would it be possible, could we, could we take the Afghan campaign, the last 20 years, Jason, and maybe go back and take a look at that? And I'd love to just get your perspective. I mean, you started working this thing in 02, you stayed with it all the way through, you've worked it at multiple levels. Could you talk about Afghanistan at a macro level and and what got us into that thing? What, you know, where did we where were the turns that we took that we shouldn't have taken? How might it have gone differently? Just could you give us some perspective on Afghanistan and maybe culminate it with why it still matters? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's an article I wrote with an Afghan at, for CNN called uh, Don't Abandon Afghanistan Again. Uh, and we run through that that big macro picture of us, the U.S. actually getting to be friends with Afghanistan during World War II. You know, a, a U.S. Army major being sent in there to set up relations in case we needed that for airfields. You know, and then fast forward to some some uh, aid and agricultural relationships in the 50s and 60s. And then at the end of the 70s, you know, we get heavily involved in Afghanistan from a U.S. perspective, uh, trying to help the Afghans push the Soviets out of Afghanistan. But then we we left them. You know, we left Afghans in a, a hot mess, we left Pakistan holding this hot mess uh, and this violent extremist, you know, this super severe Islamist radicals all over the region. And we just left and, and walked away in the, in the 90s and it collapsed. The civil war, then the Taliban is born. And the Taliban are supported by Pakistan. Then Al Qaeda shifts in as we start chasing Al Qaeda out of Africa. And September 11th is a result of all of that uh, kind of neglect uh, on our part and, and abandonment of the Afghan people. So we come back in 2001, you know, within that first year, I'm over there and I'm feeling that that sense of betrayal from the Afghan people. Every Afghan I meet saying, when are you going to leave again? This is 2002. We haven't even been there a year. And they're saying, when are you leaving again? Because that's what you do. And so we're all trying to convince them. No, we're your long term partners. We're going to be here. We're going to be a, a part of what you're doing. We want you to be successful, stabilize your country. We've, you know, we came here for three things: get get justice with Al Qaeda, remove the Taliban, uh, and make sure this doesn't become a safe haven again. So that's what we're working on, and and that will go through the campaign. That's that's kind of the three big things. And in the end, you know, we saw the the same uh, 
forces come back out of Pakistan and, and come back out of their hiding places and take over the entire country. And now today, uh, it is worse than the 1990s, and we are completely out of the picture while this, uh, this cauldron of terrorism is just boiling over, and it's causing a massive humanitarian uh, debacle on a scale that we're going to see this winter is really, really in a bad place. Yeah. I wonder, um, you know, when, when you look back on Afghanistan and the campaign, what things come to mind for you where we just, it just, it just, you, you outlined those three things. And I think that's super clear. Um, what happened? Like what, what, where did we, where did, where did it come off the rails in that 20 year journey uh, that looking back on it, that we, we should try to learn from. Yeah. I think a lot in that first year um, was a lack of clarity from the U S to NATO and to, to the Afghan partners and to the region. They were kind of, what, are you going to stay here? Are you committing long-term? Are you here for a little while? And we were really torn on that. You know, I was up with counterterrorism task force at Bagram working for General Vines, you know, and, and the word is build with plywood. You know, we're not building anything permanent. We don't want concrete. Keep it light. We're not going to be here long. At the same time, then I moved down to Kabul uh, to help them build their army and their government. And like, we're trying to convince the Afghans, yeah, we're staying. We, we're going to be your, your good partner. So I think it was that lack of policy clarity in the U.S., and that confused everybody, our, our allies and our enemies, because the Taliban just you know, rolled back over the border into Pakistan to their safe havens and safe houses, and the Pakistani army just kind of said, all right, we'll hang out here, we'll protect you, and see what happens. Uh, and eventually, they took the gamble that we would leave if they pressured us enough. It took 20 years, but it did work. You know, We did get tired, and we never fully committed to that policy that was needed. Uh, you know, really, we either needed to do a Columbia model and do a small footprint of CT yeah. and, and uh, you know, FI fit for a long time and, and just accept that that's the role or come in and build a South Korea model. We're, we're going to come in and with a large force and we're here until you're stable. This is important. We know this is the terrorism hotspot of Asia and we've got to park here and own it and just stop it and and I think we didn't pick either option. We we went somewhere down the middle, and that confused everybody, including ourselves. Yeah, that's really good. I, you know, when you when you talked about the Columbia model, you know, I grew up in Seventh Special Forces Group, and you know, I was a detachment commander during the '90s, and and you know, I was fortunate enough to be immersed in the the Colombian effort, and 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 seeing generations of, of, of work with that small footprint that you talked about using that term that a lot of people don't even know what the hell it is, which is FID, Foreign Internal Defense. Um, you know, COIN and CT was all thrown around during the Afghan campaign. Uh, but, but this long-term approach of foreign internal defense, it's actually been around for decades where we go into these at-risk places and we help build capacity against insurgency and lawlessness with a small footprint and we engage across all instruments of power. It's, it, you know, it's actually, we, we've got a pretty good track record of doing that in some tough places. And one of them definitely was Columbia, where I can even remember as a young captain in the nineties, you know, you couldn't leave your quartel with, you, you, there was no way you couldn't get the Colombians to go outside the wire Fast forward to 04, 05, 06, and, you know, they were extremely proficient conducting unilateral night operations, keeping the FARC on their heels, 
and really changing the game. But it was a persistent presence of foreign internal defense, small footprint by, with, and through over time. And it never seemed to me, Jason, that the United States or NATO even considered that as an option. It was all win it on my watch, win it on my rotation before my next rip toa, I've got to fracture the Taliban and turn this thing around. Is, am I am I crazy or or what are your thoughts on like the whole FID small group type approach? You know, being there in that first year and getting to talk to all the soft guys who were in there helping to build the army, those first couple of battalions, I got there with the fourth battalion, uh, but they, you know, three others have been cobbled together. And the fourth was kind of the first serious security force assistance. We've built an OMC at the embassy and, and you guys own it. We're going to shift away from, you know, just uh, ad hoc creation. Um, there was kind of that discussion with amongst us, but I don't think it was really happening in CENTCOM and in DC in the same way. All they would, you know, I was reading the emails. My boss was was the chief of the OMC. You know, I was helping draft emails to OSD and to, to, to uh, CENTCOM. And really, they just wanted to know, what's the progress? How many battalions have you made? It wasn't, it wasn't good policy direction as in, hey, here's what we want to do. It was just build a core of Afghan military. Okay, so a division-sized element of Afghan military, build that. Okay, wh well, what's next? What does that division do in the future? Are we leaving? Do we need to build it to run the whole country? Or you know, are we, are we going to build how large is the army? I mean, we were throwing around numbers like we could only have 60,000 in the military because that's traditionally what Afghanistan needs. I mean, Texas, you, you, you might need more than 60,000 uh, when you've got terrorists and six bad neighbors. I mean, maybe that was just an old number that worked in the tribal system, but we need more than an Arbakai. We need some, something a little bit different now. So I just don't think we had the right discussion about how to do it. And then Iraq distracted. I mean, I was sitting in the Kabul and embassy watching the Iraq invasion on television next to General Eikenberry. And both of us just looked at each other, you know, whatever time it was in Afghanistan, I went, yeah, <laughs> it's gonna get worse. You know, we, we couldn't get the resources we need already. Um, we're literally trying to do by name requests to can I get one officer to come out here and do this job to build this army that you've asked us to build. And we couldn't get one guy. You know, we'd, we'd have to go back numerous times to, to fight for one captain or one major. So, you know, it just tore the soft right out of it. I think even if soft wanted to take on that mission, that long term Columbia approach, you know, they were just being held back and, and they were going to have to do Iraq. And there was no way they could the army could somehow spare anybody to do the, the Columbia model and, and form it in that other way. I just don't think people are thinking about it. We, we always scratched our heads, Jason, and, I, and I, you know, I think it's super helpful to know that you were in the room when this was happening, but we always scratched our heads, and it seemed like there was such a dissonance between you know, the, the guys and girls on the ground who had seen a lot of foreign internal defense. We had done a lot, not that we had all the answers, because we didn't by, by a long shot, but certainly some of these approaches, like you said, we just needed clarity. You know, and and if we're going to go down that road, you know, we've seen this kind of thing before. We have a lot of NCOs that have, have you know senior enlisted advisors that know this problem or know this approach. But it always seemed like there was just this strategic dissonance between the folks on the ground executing the mission and then the policymakers and the strategists who were almost just just wet dreaming on acetate, man. I mean, like it was just terrible. It was such a isolated endeavor, it seemed like. There was just no connection between those two worlds. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, do you want to comment on that or, you know, we can move. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good, good way to think about it. I mean, there was just a big gap in, in how people were thinking about it. Um, and, and there was also, there was one other culture, one other thing that I think is very specific to Afghanistan, Afghanistan, for most of those guys in the first year, the first six months, those early rotations, it was a vengeance mission. And yeah. nobody, we wanted to go that's right, kill man. the bad that's guys. Right. I mean, that's and, right. so I'm watching, I'm watching, you know, we had a battalion that was assigned to help us, you know, basically be, be the drill instructors and the AIT instructors, you know, battalion of soft, uh, of Green Berets, was third group, and, and I think 19th or 20th, or taking turns. And I saw three or four of them come in and out in my year. Um, and they were, they were torn, you know, here, they were like, yes, General Eikenberry will help you train the ANA, but they're like, how many, how many of my teams can I get out hunting around Kabul in case there's some bad guys? Yeah. You know, I know we need to train the ANA. That's the long-term vision, but we also like to go kill people while we're here on this rotation because I want some blood. So there was the, you know, even, even the Green Berets who should have been going, Hey, let us add this and we're going to own it and we'll rotate. And my group will, will run this mission for decades. You know, this is what we should be doing. Even they wanted to go out. You know, it was uh, later they, they shifted to, to what they should have been doing. But even they, they wanted some. You know, everybody kicking down doors was sexy then. They it's wanted so to true. get in the cave and find them. It's so true, bro. And and look, I, I'll tell you, I appreciate the intellectual honesty on that. In my book, Game Changers, um, that I wrote to, to address the village stability program that we did in, in 2010, you know, one of the things that I talk about was that we we collectively, we being special forces, we collectively pursued a level of retribution that was unprecedented in the early years of the campaign. And and one of the one of the things that I cite as in this builds on what you said was when I when I got over there in 04 uh, as a, as a battalion three, we were operating in southern and western Afghanistan, and we didn't even have Title Ten authority uh, for the ANA. The, the Title 10 authority belonged to what they call embedded tactical trainers or ETTs. And the reason for that is we had we had self-relegated away from the mission of foreign internal defense. We begged off. We begged off for advise and assist, and we didn't want it because it got in the way of targeting. It got in the way of getting after the Taliban and doing direct action strikes. And we gave, which is heresy in the special forces world, we gave Title 10 authority to the National Guard. And, 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 and we actually had to do missions as the ANA started to come into, you know, replace the AMF or the re replace the militia. Um, we had to take ETTs, not that they were bad guys they were great guys, but we had to take ETTs with us. Yeah. To what? Do <laughs> our job. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that started early on. I mean, we, we, we didn't Later. have enough SF to do it. So we brought in young Colonel Milley and his, you know, brigade plus his brigade of trainers to be that first camp phoenix you know yep. training team and they're just 10th mountain guys with no yep. special skills on how to build an army and that's where we are we were at valley forge build an army from scratch what's 10th right. mountain know about that you know that's great people but you know he, he no. did all right you know he put a few stars on but that wasn't the team no no. And I think we all have to kind of, and this is where you, you bring up a really great point is we all have to look in the mirror and, and kind of own what our various, you know, uh, contributions were to, to this thing over 20 years. Um, so maybe, maybe at some point you and I can pull back up and go deeper on this. Cause I think it would be, it would yeah. be an excellent conversation, but, but I want to kind of move on into, so 20 years go by 
And there is, there's a lot of uh, confusion, a lack of clarity on where we're going with this thing. Um, but things start to come off the rails severely, you know, uh, last early summer, late spring, 2021, even before that, but we start to really see, um, quantifiable evidence that that provinces are falling districts are falling and this thing is this thing is this thing is is starting to look like a house of cards i wonder if you could talk about the collapse in afghanistan from your point of view what you what you when you started to see things fall apart what's going through your mind at that point and and give us just your point of view on on the collapse and what happened and and what should we take away from it yeah, that's that. That is. Uh, I was, I'm, I'm trying to work my way through your book, but those blow by blow, everyday, um, you know, snippets of what you were going through. It brought back so many, yeah. you know, just horrendous nights of all of last August and, and September. You know, just email boxes flooded. It's really hard to think through that. But I'll, yeah. I'll back up a little bit to you know, really 2018, 2019. I started. You know, I was retired from the army, but I was still being asked. Uh, by CENTCOM and, and NATO and other force folks to talk to the Afghan government and, and you know, pass, ex- help them think through stuff. And I was talking with the NATO SCR and talking with UNAMA and other countries and, and organizations about what needs to happen over the next few years. So I was watching it really closely from a policy level. And I was talking to people, you know, my contact was on the National Security Council in, in the, uh, the Afghan White House. So I'm hearing what Karzai and then Ghani are thinking, you know, during that time period when I, after I'm out of the service. And it was just, uh, I think it was, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that the U.S. and NATO would, would leave one day. You know, they, they had convinced themselves somehow that it was going to be the South Korea model, that there was going to be this long-term, that NATO cared enough about this area. They thought that, well, as long as we're fighting terrorism, we've got the backers. You know, we have the NATO coalition. That's 50-something countries, no way that'll ever... And it's just steadily, that all the signs were there that it wasn't going to happen. Then the Doha talks begin, and I'm trying to get the Afghans to really get in there and take the lead. I was like, you need to take the lead on this. Don't let the West take the lead. You're going to lose all your uh, your relevance, and you're going to lose all your leverage. And they couldn't take the lead. They, You know, that, that starts the real decline uh, during those talks where the Afghans just realized wait a minute, they, they might not just leave us, they might leave us weakened uh, to such a point that we, we're we not going to make it. Um, and so then it becomes about, hey, you've got to make sure you've got all your enablers in place, because if they leave and you you can't fly close air support anymore, your forces can't handle any big push. I mean, they're not there yet. They're a 19-year-old army. Most 19-year-old kids are pretty worthless, you know, <laughs> unless they're, they're in the 82nd or Ranger Regiment. There's 19 year old kids, not that great. So um, the Afghans couldn't get their head around that. And, and many of us were trying to convince, you know, at CENTCOM and other places, we're trying to convince DC, you got to leave the enablers in there. We leave civilians all over the world working security work. You've got to leave at least the enablers, if not a CT footprint, because you're dooming them. They already feel like we've sold them out to the Taliban at Doha. If you pull every resource, they're going to collapse. And and that was kind of the last message a lot of advisors explained to Trump as he was leaving and to Biden as he was coming in. Like, that's the critical point. If you can't leave CT, then you need to have civilian enablers. They've got to be able to fly. They've got to be able to move around, move their soft, and keep them keep them logistically and medically and 
and keep them up to date on Intel stuff. But when that all was gone, as soon as that, that announcement came out in the spring that everything was going, that was just it. The morale of the Afghan people dropped. The Afghan uh, military's morale dropped. The, the, all the leaders in the government just went, holy crap. We're getting absolutely betrayed. All promises you ever made are going away. You lied to us. You know? So now they're angry, and they're fighting each other, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And they can't get a defensive plan in place fast enough to stop the onslaught that's going to be coming. So, um, which of course, most of that came through bribery and good, uh, um, propaganda. You know, the Taliban didn't have to fight very far. I always say they, they bought, not fought their way to Kabul because, uh, you know, they had good advice from Pakistan diplomatically and on the intelligence front, and they just worked the system and bought out the right people and got the right places to surrender. And, and they, except for a few spots, they walked in, uh, and took over, which is, uh, which is a rough one. That was the hardest part for me. It was just to see that uh, they were so mentally defeated. It, it was so easy to tip, tip the country over. Uh, but, but we helped get them there. And we, we didn't, when we didn't respond, you know, when they did fight and we didn't respond forcefully enough and say, wait a minute, if, you're fight, if the Taliban are fighting this hard, they've broken Doha, we're going to flatten them. We didn't. And that taught, that taught the Afghans everything they needed to know. It, it was done. There was nothing. No one was coming to help. And you, as you know, I mean, fighting in small units, <laughs> when you know no one's coming to help, that's it. You, you start evading. It's, it's yeah. not, it's about living. It's about escaping and getting your people out. You're not going to fight. Uh, you're not going to fight a horde. No, I get, you're absolutely right, Jason. And there's so much to unpack in what you just said there. And one of the lines that Bashir, uh, an Afghan commando and Afghan special forces and Q course grad said when he was at Moorhead as he you know, looked out the, the front door and, and everything was falling, he said, do they think we're made of stone? You know, and he was just, he was remarking about the absence of medic, medic, medical evacuation, air medevac. There were no, there were no precision fires. There was no intelligence surveillance reconnaissance that they had come to rely on. And, you know, I think it's, it's to me, what, what, what I struggle with, and, and I, I'm like you, I had a hard time just watching the Taliban walk into Kabul because they out psyoped us. But I also struggle with the fact that we built this army. We built this Afghan army in our image. We built them with a reliance on enablers. And, and we, we saw that the evolution of the Afghan special operation forces started to take on the preponderance of the fighting. And we, 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 we got behind that. We put our advisors against that. And then all of a sudden, like you said, we, you know, we pulled the enablers, we pulled the contractors. I was interviewing general Sammy Sadat, who was fighting in Helmand. And he told me that, you know, his, his, his air commander just walked into the office one day and said, sir, we can't fly anymore. And he said, why? He said, all the contractors are gone. So there was no warning. There was no phasing of it. We literally, literally pulled the rug out from underneath them to the point that they couldn't even prosecute the, the desperate battle they were waging to hold on to the provinces. And I, I, I don't understand. I mean, I, I can't get my head around that, uh, Jason. I, I can't get my head around how... We could we could allow that to happen. Worse, we could do that in such an uninformed, callous way. Um, it, it's either an isolated policy decision or just a don't give a shit. And I don't know which. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But I, I just can't get my head around how because it's monumental. 
that we would pull the rug like that, knowing the impact that it was going to have. Yeah, and, I, and I've heard from from people who were in the D.C. decision making you know, system that basically the president wanted out at all costs uh, and there was nobody in the administration willing to push back on it. And they literally made the decision before the the, the uh, OSD guy could get in place who would have been pushing back. Uh, you know, before he was seen by the Senate and got confirmed, they made the decision because they didn't want any pushback. They didn't want any public discussion. They just said, look, if Biden wants out, we're out. Nobody argued. Nobody say anything. He's, you know, I, I truly think there's almost probably a, a non-memo that went out that said, if you say Afghanistan, you're fired. You know, you're, you're either with this team or a new administration and this is it. It's our first big decision. You're you're all with us. Uh, or you're out of here. And and I mean, everybody just folded up and said, okay, you know, complete betrayal and total abandonment. That's what we want to be known for across the globe. Cause that's what I hear from other countries. <laughs> They're like, is that your standard now? You can work with somebody for 20 years and then walk away in a moment's notice. Yeah. If, is that a standard? Whoa. Wholesale abandonment. And you know, you take it back to, um, not only did it happen here, but we have a systemic multi-decade uh, reputation for this, as you as you pointed out, um, the abandonment of Afghanistan before this. But let's not forget the Montagnards in Vietnam, um, the, the, the Kurds in Syria, the Iraqi police, the Iraqi military, uh, Afghanistan twice. And, you know, when you start to build that kind of systemic reputation and you know, we're operating in a world today, Jason, where, you know, I don't think that we're going to navigate national security situations unilaterally. I mean, I don't see that. I, I think I think more than ever, we're going to rely on our, <clears throat> our partner capability, our by, with, and through capability. But yet, again, in this tone-deaf, uninformed kind of way, we just flip the pages like it's some kind of, like you get a mulligan on this shit, you know? And, and, and I, that's, that's so baffling to me how we can just like self-declare that this is, you know, we're just going to put this behind us. You know, one of the things that I kind of get upset about, and, and, and I was on another podcast with an SF guy talking about this, but I, I'm pretty hard on the, the, the soft arena and the SF arena as well, because we didn't have any SF ODAs on the ground leading up to this thing. We weren't doing the kind of resilience work with the NMRG and, and the ANASF that we, in my opinion, we could have been doing, that SF should be stomping on the table that we're doing and, 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 and fighting to have an ODA or two in there, at least in the final months leading up to the collapse, you know, at, at least putting mechanisms in place to resist, to evade, uh, I, you know, and, and the fact right now that, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to, my, my Christmas card list from GoFos at Bragg's probably going to go down on this, but, you know, the fact that we still have a podcast in the SF regiment called the indigenous approach is professionally embarrassing to me. Like it, it, it is because I don't see how in the world we can claim any kind of proponency at this point right now. And I, you know, I, again, I guess I'm trying to build, I, I'm, I'm throwing a harumph at what you said, but I think it, it it goes down to the military levels as well, in my opinion. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think is, is the Jedberg uh, podcast still out there? <laughs> I mean, I watched the Jedberg program come out and I was like plotting. Yes, I know Jedberg guys from World War II. Yeah. I know that history. We need to be thinking like that. We need yeah. to be operating like that. This was the perfect moment to make sure we had all the right teams and all the right places, all the right experts to just go, we can hold this, you know, and we can be quiet about this. I get it when the president says everybody out, but that's when, you, you know, somebody needs to stand up and go, we, we have people for this. We yep. do this. Like, let us do this right. We can save some national embarrassment. Yeah. And we could even have a win. You know, we could, if you could hold for the first year, the winter would have been quiet. You know, yeah. you just had to get from August to, to really November, December. And I, I think you're right. I mean, there, there was just that, that moment completely missed. Nobody was willing to, to just up. step up and go, you know what? We can't do this. No, Our future depends on it. Not, not Afghanistan's ours. Cause I think we have a black eye. I mean, I got so many nasty notes from NATO folks uh, from other NATO countries, when we announced that, they're like, wait a minute, everything's going? That's not what we were told. You know, we were told somebody, you know, we're going to do this in the right way. We, we were not told this is going to be, you know, everybody running for the gates and, and topping on an airplane and flying out in helicopters from the rooftop. Like, that's not how this was explained to us. Right. So many levels. Thing. Yeah. I heard the same thing, man. And, and you know, the, the thing about all of that is, my gosh, when you when you kind of unpack that and look at that, it's understandable that, 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 that perspective is there, that people feel that way. Um, and yet we still did it. We still, and, and I guess where, where I struggle with this right now is that institutionally we're still doing it, you know, and I think that's why so many veterans groups sprung up you know, I looked around at the, the conference that you guys hosted at Georgetown for Global Friends of Afghanistan, which was incredible, by the way. I was so impressed that you guys pulled that off on a shoestring budget so fast. Um, I was disgusted that there were no government representatives there in official capacity and, and mainstream media, but we'll get there. But, but, but you know, I think these volunteer groups, particularly the veteran groups, Jason, that, 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 that jumped into the fray, you know, I think they saw a lot of the things that we're talking about. You know, they, they've been in the fight for 20 years. They understood the absence of a substantive intelligence network prior to 9-11. They understood the lack of a partner capacity prior to 9-11. And they bled for it. And they fought for it. And they, they understood the value of social capital and a relationship portfolio that had been cultivated over multiple decades and now wholesale abandoned you know, and, and just left to its own devices to not only go away, but to be co-opted, to be turned, and the, the so many different implications on that. I think veterans at a core level get that. I think they get that. And, and that's why they were so adamant to at least try to preserve it until the government came to its senses. I know that's what I was thinking. I was like, look, man, I am a 53-year-old retired storyteller not the number one draft pick for personnel extraction, right? I mean, however, there's no way in hell I'm going to like walk away from Nizam and Bashir and these other guys that I know, because surely to God, somebody's going to want their, going to want to want this handoff and is going to want to repurpose them. So I'll just work with these dudes and keep them warm until somebody comes along and responsibly picks it up. And it never happened. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. The veterans knew how much was invested and it was veterans from around the world. I mean, I, yeah. I was probably, when this first kicked off, I, I felt like I was the, I was the, the, the ambassador to Afghanistan. I was getting contacted from groups around the world. My phone was, my phone and phone number and email had gone out in Afghanistan because I had been on the news a lot and people yeah. were just hitting me from left. I mean, it just broke my Gmail, my WhatsApp signal. Everything was just full of Afghans going, here's my documents. You know, I got more passports than the State Department right now. And so I, I start reaching out to these groups around the globe that I know that are standing up. And, and it was veterans. It was civilians working in, in military organizations. It was development people, diplomats just coming out of the woodwork going, I, I'm invested. Like, how can I help? And it was amazing to see that group then yeah. link into humanitarian groups and human rights groups that we never talk to in combat because <laughs> we don't like each other. All, I mean, all bets right. were off for, for a month there. We were all best friends, you know? How many millions of dollars do you need? Let me send it to you. I mean, that was crazy. I mean, I was blown away at the, just the, the how big this network got so quickly. And I'm glad, you know, Tito, who who was the conference chair, who put that on, his team at Georgetown is, is writing a book with all those lessons learned about how that blew up so quickly and why that it happened. And I think they've they've put their finger on, on that, but it is a, that long 20 year commitment People were invested, and we didn't care that none of our policymakers and our capitals were no longer invested. We were all invested as a global organization. I mean, just impressed the hell out of me how quickly that stood up. Um, yeah. And you know, I, I was talking to uh, you know a political bundler from one of the political parties in America who's you know helping me get on the phone with Ross Perot's son to talk about money with this. Can I get this general on there who's retired so he can talk to him and then get the guy from the organization that's going to do the evac on the phone and have a zoom to, I mean, what we were all, like you said, you know, we were not the top draft picks. We're all just sitting in our living rooms, hopefully trying to retire and all this stuff just fell on us. We were like, okay, um, I guess I can do something. I got to yeah. do something. Yeah, I'll never forget Worth Parker, one of the Dunkirk uh, meetings, and we were just all, all the volunteer groups that I knew were going to this meeting to just try to get some, it's like looking at the world through a, a digital soda straw, so you, you wanted as many different optics as you could get. And I remember Worth said something, and I'm paraphrasing, but he goes, he goes, well, let me look at my manifest of commandos on my Mac, you know, and, and it was so funny, because I just thought, what planet are we on? What are yeah. we, you know, what are we doing right now? But yet it was, it had the most fidelity. It had the most, and, and it was working. I mean, the, 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 we knew who they were, we knew where they were and they trusted us. And so there was a value proposition there that, that we could provide to those Neo forces on the ground to, to fit that puzzle piece of which face in this crowd is actually vetted and truly at risk. And, you know, there was, there was, I think a legitimate approach to that. And to your point, you know, it really did represent, if you want to dive in a little bit, it, it, at least I've never seen that level of collaboration. I think the, the Ori Brofman book, The Starfish and the Spider, this was the true manifestation of a leaderless organization doing that flat collaboration with a myopic purpose. And it was beautiful to see, um, you know, but also I think it represented this private public capability for warrior for life, soft for life, that we always talk about, that really is just kind of an excuse to get together and drink and tell war stories. But in this case, it was true. Like you really had 
this warrior for life, soft for life element in play that was harvesting and leveraging 20 years of institutional memory and experience and personal experience for one granular focus. And it, boy, it was, it was really something to behold. Yeah, absolutely. I had written an article um, when, when COVID first started kicking off with a, a guy named Big John who knew about uh, you know, some of the capabilities of our special operations forces. And we were talking about how, how can we get you know, our military to be working with our health people to, to yeah. get around COVID, you know, we know how to track and trace and, you know, we can help the, the capabilities exist inside the military uh, to help with COVID. You know, how do we get those in there into the health organizations? Uh, and nobody, you know, took us up on that offer, but then you, you're right. If this happens and all of a sudden the largest network of people who have no business even knowing each other, let alone collaborating is moving millions of dollars and saving yeah. lives around the globe. It was stunning to see, and I, and I, I don't think people outside of the system, uh, who was this network, can f ever fully understand how amazing that was and how how capable it was. And that is a a public private spot. I mean, we have to be able to duplicate that for any issue, any time. And and it was a whole of America, you know, it whole really of was. NATO. <laughs> it wasn't just whole of government, like. I've yeah. never seen anything like that. And I, I think humanity. people are still trying to figure out how the hell it worked. Yeah, I, you know, that's the reason I wrote Pineapple in third person. I, I really, yeah. I wanted to be I a number. So. I wanted it. I wanted it to be, you know, look from my vantage point. Here's what I saw with our little group, and I, I want to, I want to remember this. I want to remember what these men and women did because it was astounding. It was the best in us stepping forward. And honestly, you know, I just took good notes, man. That's all I did. I just tried to, I just tried to keep up and write notes and, and really uh, storytell about what these amazing people did. And then you magnify it on the scale, as you said, that it happened at an international level. It was really phenomenal. And again, big props to Tito and you and, and John Agolia for bringing those people together in person. I, I hugged a lot of necks that I could not wait to hug next that I'd never met before. I'm not kidding. I, I, I met people. I mean, I was in tears meeting some people for the first time. And, and I just, I'm very grateful for that. And, and, and I think probably a good segue of kind of like, okay, now where do we go? It's been a year plus. There's been a lot happening in Afghanistan, man, that honest to God, I, I just, I cannot believe it just keeps getting uh, more amazing that we, we're not talking about it. It's not being covered, but there are some epic things happening in that country right now um, from the reemergence of violent extremism, humanitarian disasters on a scale that I don't think we've ever seen in modern history. Can you talk about that a little bit, Jason? Like, where are we now? What's happening? Yeah. So I'll back up just a bit. How the heck I know what's going on over there. So at the height of, you know, that August to September timeframe when we're all just clamoring to get people out. Yeah. I pulled back and I was like, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm a one man team trying to connect with 40 different groups and, and people I shouldn't be talking to, but people I am talking to because I'm trying to save lives. And I said, what, what's next? And so I reached out to, you know, some diplomats, some generals, some, you know, senior OSD officials. And I said, hey, how do, where do we go from here? Is this, this evacuation is going to end at some point? What's next? If, if we've if the U.S. has washed their hands of it, you know, what happens to Afghanistan and how can anybody cope with that? You know, how can anybody help? What do we do with all this big collaboration of networks? Can they help in the future? 
So we we cobbled together Global Friends of Afghanistan. There was about six or seven of us who were kind of the core of it from all over the world, um, uh, and no Afghans at the time because they were all in shock and awe and running for their lives. Uh, so we were like, how do we help? We put this team together with one basic mission for the first year, which was to keep Afghanistan on the front page of the news. How do we keep this from just disappearing? Um, and so we, we were able to build a team uh, over that year that included you know, becoming 50% Afghan, probably about 60 or 70 folks that every day were either on television, on radio, on podcast, in print, uh, in interview, tweeting, on LinkedIn, talking about Afghanistan every single day. Uh, and we kept that up all the way through the conference that we had at, on September 1st in, in Georgetown, uh, with Georgetown in partnership with them, because they believed uh, in that, met that mission, too, that we need to keep looking at Afghanistan. Uh, so we tracked it and followed it and grew this group of all volunteers. Like you said, we threw a conference at Georgetown on a shoestring budget because we didn't fundraise. We just people raised. We brought in the right human beings who wanted to volunteer to help um, to do what they could do and do what they do best. So we worked with no pay for a year. Well, we're still working with no pay, but that's what we decided to do. Uh, it, we didn't want anybody coming here for a job. We wanted everybody to come to just see how they could help Afghans. So that continues uh, to this day because what Afghans are facing right now, uh, the economic collapse basically just gutted the, the country. You know, people, the jobless rate amongst women, especially uh, extremely high, but men as well. People are just trying to figure out how to make money to, to feed their kids and keep them warm in the winter because they're running out of fuel already. Um, you've got a food collapse. Uh, the, the system started breaking down uh, pretty quickly. So starvation and hunger on a level uh, unlike any other country right now, for its population especially. You have a, a stability collapse. I mean, it's just an insecure nightmare. There are terrorists running around this, this terrorist training camp that's as big as Texas with no supervision. You know, the Taliban Haqqani network that's kind of running the country, um, you know, they're fighting with each other. They're literally, you know, trying to kill each other to get to get power inside this uh, regime they've built. And you've got Pakistan trying to referee because they've lost control of the project they created. You've got Al-Qaeda, you've got ISK, you've got TTP, you've got other smaller uh, groups over there. And you've also now, from all indications that I got today, you've got ISIS Central coming into Afghanistan. You know, you've got just this cauldron of terrorists and the world has completely pulled back from it. And it's just starting to boil and it's starting to boil. And I don't know when it boils over, but if ISIS is setting up shop in Afghanistan, just like bin Laden did when he moved Al Qaeda into the 90s, that should tell you where we are security wise in that country and how ripe for the picking it must look to a group like ISIS. Well, I wanna make sure I'm hearing right what you just said is as ISIS-K who you know obviously detonated the bomb, they are, I mean, there are some bad dudes, but they are, you know, Corazon province. They're, they're a, you know, a regional affiliate of ISIS. What I just heard you say is that your assessment is that ISIS Maine is moving operations to Afghanistan. Yeah, my, I've had a couple different independent sources tell me that they basically traveled from Syria to Turkey to Iran and into Afghanistan. And they are going to set up shop in Afghanistan, just like bin Laden did, because it's the best possible place to do it right now in the world, because everybody's looking at Ukraine and China 
in Taiwan and, and everybody's pulled back from Afghanistan and wants nothing to do with it. There's no better place if you're a terrorist to set up shop. So if, if those reports are accurate, um, I, I think it's the clock is really ticking louder now. Uh, and we're just we're not we're not listening. We're not looking at those hands. Yeah. What what is your read on the because I, I, I just I'm astounded that we think that because we're done with AQ and, and ISIS, that they're done with us. What is your assessment on the their propensity and desire to strike the West again? Yeah, that's what I got early on uh, a couple months ago. I, I was my indications were that uh, the groups that are in Afghanistan that aren't fighting for power to run Afghanistan are are basically telling their people uh, get ready to strike. You know, start looking at other places. Al Qaeda put out their message: don't send any more fighters to Afghanistan. Uh, but have them stay where they are and start looking at external targets. We're not fighting Americans in Afghanistan anymore. We're going to fight the West elsewhere. So, uh, you know, the messages are going out. You never know what's real and what's not real. But, uh, you know, if Al Qaeda basically said, don't come here anymore, maybe they saw the ISIS brand growing too. And it was a, you know, we don't want to get in a, in a, a fist fight over this chunk of uh, training area. Uh, let's just, uh, let's find other ways. Uh, it's, yeah. All these things coming together, not not a good picture as we're kind of pulling back. I don't think the administration's put out a full counterterrorism strategy yet or a national security strategy. So we really don't know how we're lining our assets up to, to take this on. But uh, the enemy's still moving, like like you said. Yeah, and they have, have a vote. Them. And they have a vote, right? They have a vote in what, what happens. Um, what are your thoughts on the resistance, Jason, as you, as you look at that? What, uh, you know, with Massoud and what's happening there and how should we be thinking about that? Yeah, I think the, the Afghans are in a tough spot to resist this. I was talking to somebody yesterday and said, well, why, why aren't the Afghan men just out there, you know, killing the Taliban for, for blowing up their children or, you know, beating their women when they're trying to protest? I said, well, because they get killed. You know, it's, it's great to say, I'll go out there and fight that guy with a gun, but fists don't beat AK-47s in any fight I've ever seen. So, uh, I think the Afghans just find themselves in a tough spot. There are organizations that are, you know, collections of former military guys uh, that we help train around Afghanistan. Some are in the open, some are quiet, but they don't, when they know there's nothing behind them, when they know if they fire all their ammunition, they can't get more. If they need medical and logistics, there is none. That's a tough way to, to start a fight. You know, and it, you're already behind. You, you've, you, you are behind. The Taliban Haqqani network has got security pretty not great, but they're they're good enough around the country. So how do you turn the tide? Uh, and I think they're just in a tough spot. They they're not sure how to go forward. Um, and I and I think most nations have been clear with them. No one's going to support another militia group in Afghanistan. That's what led to the civil war. Is everybody trying to get behind their guy in the '90s? So I think that message is clear. Maybe there's. Uh, some kind of political entity forming of Afghans around the globe that will you know, cre create some kind of government in exile like the, like the Taliban did. Uh, so there's somebody to engage with and start building the grassroots stuff needed to, uh, to plan the future. Uh, but short of somebody securing, you know, maybe a safe haven in Uzbekistan for uh, Afghans to, to set up shop in um, and then uh, take a province and, and hold a province or two in the north, so they can start reestablishing some kind of beachhead to 
move in and push out. I, I think they're just stuck in kind of a, a holding pattern. They're just circling around the airport looking for a way to, to put this thing on the ground. But I, I, the world just doesn't seem to care. And I think that's the problem the Afghans have. When everybody left, they truly left. They just checked out. You know, there's a few diplomats trying to get humanitarian aid in, but th- there's not much else happening. You know, Jason, I, I, I agree with your assessment, and I, and I honestly shudder to think about what it's going to take for us to care again. Yeah, that's the part I'm, I'm most worried about. And people always, Afghans especially, ask me that. What will it take for the world to care about Afghanistan again? I said, unfortunately, another September 11th. You know, I, we wouldn't have cared if not for September 11th. And, yep. you know, that's, that's just the way it is. And, and I, I, I sadly tell Afghans, you are on your own in many ways. I think people will come to help you if you can show that there's a way and you have a vision and there's a path. But you, it's it's going to have to be Afghan led, and that's going to take a while to get there. Um, is is that something that Global Friends of Afghanistan is trying to help with, Jason, to, to kind of frame that? I like how, is that um, because I I want to make sure that I'm clear on that, and others are clear as we think about the role you all are playing. Yeah, we're we're basically trying to educate um, non Afghans uh, about the situation and what's going on, and educate Afghans on you know, what the future might look like and help them think about what the future could look like and how to get there and to allow Afghans a space to speak and and put their ideas forth and gather, you know, one of the conferences at the conference that we held, we had a lot of working groups. And one of those working groups, you know, besides the big resettlement need and the evacuation wrap up and what could be done was what would the future government of Afghanistan look like? And I sat in on that group because I was interested and what Afghans would say, put around the table, what would 30 Afghans come to a conclusion for? And it was really, it was good to see. It was led by two women. Uh, there were gro- voices from every political spectrum and ethnic background of Afghanistan. Uh, and just to watch them debate and talk about it. So that's one of the things we're going to focus on going forward the next year, is how to get Afghans around the globe to sit and talk uh, at different locations and think about their future and what it might look like and what they don't want it to be and what they do want it to be. Because I think that's without that vision for all Afghans to get behind, there, there's really not much to unify behind when you're, you've been kicked, you know, you're being held down and held hostage by a terrorist organization. Just, there's not much hope there. So they've got to build some kind of vision and hope. And that might help other nations in the world figure out how they can help. Yeah, really good, man. Listen, I know we're right up against the time, Jason, uh, but would it be okay if we if we wrap on the um, on the topic of uh, moral injury and and leadership? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I, I just want to call attention to your article. You've written so many good pieces, man. Like my God, you're, you're a friggin' publishing machine. But um, the Afghanistan war generals are a wall uh, that. Um, came out not that long ago. And we're going to put this in the show notes because I, I frankly think it's one of the most compelling pieces I've ever writ, read on this problem set. But if it's okay, I just want to read several paragraphs from this because I think for people listening to this, whether you were involved in the Afghanistan problem set or uh, saw what was happening and felt drawn to it, I, I want you to hear Jason's words. And then I'm going to get him to weigh in on this, but um, it's it, I'm just going to read verbatim. 
As we approach the dark anniversary of the abandonment of Afghans by the NATO coalition, I am struck by the absence of most former leaders. I worked beside many of the generals that served in Afghanistan. Your troopers have questions and they need your help. Hundreds of NATO generals and admirals, known as GOFO, served in Afghanistan in what was likely the longest war in their country's history. Yet if you look at who is publicly working to help veterans cope with the fallout of this failure, it is not the generals and flag officers. At a moment when veterans need their leaders the most, there are simply few to be found. It is good that some senior leaders are working quietly in nonprofit organizations that are caring for veterans and their families. But generals and admirals are not just needed behind the scenes right now. They need to be out front where their soldiers and Marines can see them. I am working in the public spaces to help the Afghans we betrayed and the military community that is reeling from this betrayal. I am seeing veterans still working to evacuate their Afghan friends. I am watching military families use what little money they have to care for resettling Afghans. I am seeing the frustration anger, confusion, and the disbelief in most veterans as they try to come to terms with the political decision to abandon the war against terrorists in the hotbed of South Asian terror safe havens. I'm going to finish with this paragraph. The failure to leave Afghanistan honorably is crushing the souls of veterans. Depression, PTS, physical health issues, and even suicide can all be attributed to the bad policy decisions of elected leaders in numerous NATO nations. Suicide is the gut punch to most veterans. We are all struggling as we watch former com comrades make the worst choice. Most of us are helpless to intervene. And then you go on to say, um, it is time for generals who commanded divisions, corps, NATO and other training commands, soft commands, to stand up for the veterans and Afghans and speak out. Give us words that show you understand the strain military families are under. Call on politicians to hold elected and appointed leaders accountable for this dishonorable exit. Call for the full evacuation of every Afghan SIV and at-risk person that so loyally stood between, beside us. Make yourself useful to veterans and Afghans. Dude, that is so good. I, I, where, where, talk me through that. How did that emerge for you? Uh, I think that emerged, what was the date on that? I don't even remember when I pushed that out. I was looking at that and it, it, at it the top, if it's there at all. Yeah, I'll look for it. We keep going. Yeah. I, you know, I think it was after the conference. Um, yeah. And I, I invited a lot of uh, generals and flag officers to take part in the conference uh, and all had full schedules. Um, but I, I thought there might be more to it than that. And I, like I said, I know a lot of these guys, some of them are like fathers Same. to me. Same. Uh, they mentored me all the way through my career. And, um, yeah, it's, it's it, devastating. I was just really struck at how few, as I started, as we we're building the conference, I looked around at who's actually talking about Afghanistan. You know, I want to bring somebody in who, who doesn't even know what they're talking about. And there was only a handful, you know, it was literally Petraeus and McMaster out there talking about Afghanistan very openly and trying to help the American people, you know, by going on Joe Rogan to understand what is going on and what happened and what this means. Because I work, you know, one of my other nonprofits is Camp Resilient, and we're trying to help uh, military members and their families around Fort Bragg and North Carolina to cope with 20 years of war. You know, this is a strung out area, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> this part of North Carolina is really 
reeling. So I, I had that frustration that I can't do enough to help them to stop, you know, once they've gotten out or while they're still in and they're struggling. And, but wait a minute, I'm a retired major who was a sergeant, you know, before he became an officer. Why am I doing all this? And I'm looking around at all the people who are at the conference and then was like former NCOs, you know, field grade officer, no, not many senior leaders, a couple of full bird colonels, but mostly below that. I'm, and then I'm seeing senior diplomats involved. You know, I've got full ambassadors and, you know, there people who've been deputy chief, three and four star level State Department people and aid, you know, three and four star humanitarian and development people are involved in this and they're trying to help. But I'm like, like where are the generals and the admirals? What are they? Oh, well, they're all making money, you know, on this TV show talking about Ukraine. Well, that's great. There's a place for talking about that. But why aren't they over here on the war they're invested in showing the way? And I, I was just so frustrated. Um, and, I, and I'm not talking to a lot of generals these days. Um, I, I just you know. I haven't talked to a lot of them and because I, I don't really get much response back. And, no, um, right. and, and, and I'm not. I'm not mad. I'm just kind of disappointed. I'm, I'm just wishing they would feel this the way the veterans do, because I'm watching it just crush E7s and E8s and E9s and captains and majors and lieutenant colonel. It's just crushing them. And there's no one saying, hey, I'm, I should own some of this. I was the four star in charge of that country. Let me come and weigh in here and show a path for my troops on how to get through this. And let me let me speak to the American people about the pain they're under and how much this is crushing them and their families because their families are right there beside them getting crushed. And, and I'm and just, having, yeah, I'm frustrated. I am too. And, you know, I've had uh, interactions, particularly with the pineapple book and some of the things that, that I say in the epilogue. Um, but like you, I'm not angry. Uh, in fact, I've, I've had candid conversations with several uh, very senior soft officers who mentored me and were like my dad. And I've said, look, can we just set our differences aside and just take on the moral injury part? Like, can we just work that? And crickets, man. And I've, I've had senior officers from the soft community say to me, I thought the guys would be over this by now, you know, um, and really scratching their head as they say it. I've heard uh, a very, very senior officer say to a, a, a gathered group of special operators, uh, a lot, some of you are talking about betrayal. Don't do that. It makes you look like a victim. You know, um, the, it's, 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 I, I can't get my head around it. it. It's it, to me, it's, it's, it's tone deaf, but it's, it's not only that these are the, these NCOs and junior officers, they were the, you know, they, they, they did it for 20 years. I mean, and, and like you say, we just need our leaders in the public spaces right now talking about this, giving us the words that we we heard for 20 years that we followed, because now we're at a place where what do we do with this? How do we hang up the phone? You know, how do you how do you tell that family that you can't do this anymore? Do you do you do you go do a third mortgage on your home? Like, how does this end? for yeah. this generation of veterans and where's the advocacy not that i mean it, talk about i mean my victims my god the bulk of these volunteers have cashed in their 401ks their kids college funds i mean they're anything but victims i mean they're trying to do something but the moral injury is coming from the, the fact that they can't and that there's been a level of betrayal here that 73 percent of afghan war veterans are saying they feel that way yeah yeah absolutely it 
And, and I get it. There's the fine line. And we learned a lot from the 2016 and 2020 elections about generals speaking out in the public sphere. But I just watched a bunch of people applaud General Donahoe for taking the wrong approach to talk to the press on Twitter about issues that weren't Afghanistan. Okay, so if it's okay for a two-star, he's going to get applauded by everybody for, for talking about you know policy decisions and, and sparring with the press. I think it'll be okay for a bunch of three-stars and four-stars who are retired, not right. have no risk at all to their careers, to stand out there and say, you know what? We need to talk about this. You know what? I'm going to go to Congress with these other four-star generals, and we're going to talk to each of the members of the Senate and the Congress that should care about this, and we're going to get some things fixed. We're going to get State Department to build a task force to finish this. We're going to hire some of these volunteers to go work in there as contract help, because we do that all the time in the government, and sort this out and move it along and get all the SIVs processed. We're going to put our necks out there and stop writing books and helping advise businesses and talking on MSNBC and CNN and Fox News, and we're going to do something. And I, and I just am utterly frustrated that they don't feel the need to, to finish the mission when all their soldiers are trying to finish it. I mean, I, yeah. I just I hear from Afghans veterans every single day who are just looking for some leadership. And, and to me, uh, I, I can't imagine that it all has to come from the battalion level and below when we have people who are highly trained at how to move big organizational things through the wickets, you know, yeah. I, there's no excuse for that. We can, no. we can do this. Uh, and I don't know what, what else is more important. Um, I don't know. I, I just don't. I don't and, and, I, and I wonder what happens if we don't, Jason, I wonder what happens to this segment of our population, to our brothers and sisters. Uh, if we don't do this, if we just continue on this path that we're on pretending like this isn't happening, um, how does this end? Yeah, this doesn't end well. Uh, it doesn't end well for the veterans who are eventually just will, you know, have to move on or, you know, make a really bad decision. Like I said, I mean, the, the suicide problem is, is not going away. I think University of Alabama and Duke just found that 22 a day was not even close. It's somewhere in the 40s. 40s. Um, that's just unacceptable. Again, where are all the general officers who need to be going? This is not the way. I'm going to get behind fixing this. There are just so few involved in it. They're, they're, I don't know what else they're worried about. And I get it. Everybody wants to be with their grandkids and their great-grandkids and, and enjoy writing their, their memoirs. That's cool. But you can do more than one thing at once. I got so many side hustles. My side hustles got side hustles like you do. I mean, you can figure out how to do more than one thing at once. I'm pretty sure that's what general officers school is all about. You know, how do I manage a lot of different things all day? Uh, and I'm doing it without a staff, you know, I think yeah. they could swing it without a big staff behind them anymore. Yeah. How are you holding up, Jason, through all this? Um, uh, I, I, <laughs> I probably need a vacation if you ask my wife. Um, and I'm, and I wish I could do better at, uh, at not being angry some days. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, you save all my energy to be, uh, uh, focused and calm and collected, for when it matters, but I, I, you know, get strung out on other days, but I'm, I'm, I'm balancing it. You know, I got some good people around me here in, in this community and, and my wife is just a rock and uh, has been since I was a paratrooper in the, uh, in the infantry. So she's seen this go through, through quite a cycle. Uh, and yeah. she's been amazing to, to help me get through it. And then just the people in GFA are amazing. You know, I'll get notes from Afghans who are like, Hey, do you need to take a break? How are you doing? I mean, Afghans are in Afghanistan are checking in on me 
because you know they see how hard so many folks uh, that are veterans, especially and uh, folks that have been working on Afghanistan for a while, are working. You know, and, and so I'll sit and talk with Afghans <laughs> quite a bit, <laughs> and that yeah. helps me to realize some perspective. Like, okay, everybody needs to take, take a rest. You know, I'm doing a lot of painting. I'm doing a lot of long walks. <laughs> there are ways to figure figure this out and get through it. And, and art is such a healthy medium. We're, we're getting ready to put our play back out on the road uh, about the war. And for me, that's, you know, storytelling from the stage is how I heal that in writing. And I, I do think that art is a, an important medium uh, for so many of our community. Well, look, I, I we've gone over. I, I appreciate it. I want to I want to let you uh, have the last word. It, you know, we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything, Jason, that we that we have? I mean, I know there's a lot we haven't covered, but is there anything that you feel like we need to hit? Um, and and if regardless, would you mind what would you say right now to U.S. politicians and, and institutional leaders? Uh, what would you say to the American people about Afghanistan? And what would you say to the Afghans uh, who are still uh, living this nightmare right now? Um, I think three I'll, audiences. I'll start with the Afghans, uh, you know, and I say this to them every day. Um, you know, every nation in the end is on their own. And that is a hor- that's a horrible thing, but it's how the world works. Um, uh, just like every human is really on their own. It's about the friends you make to help you get through it. And, and Afghans have got to come together and make the right friends. They may not be full-time permanent friends, but they're the friends that get them to the next level of sovereignty to, to restart their nation on their own and rebuild it. But they're going to have to look inwards and, and sort out their own internal problems and so that they can't be easily divided and conquered, uh, which is kind of the repetition uh, of the neighborhood they're living in. So uh, I think there are a lot of people that want to help Afghans and they're trying to help. And, and Afghans sh- should find those people and, and take all the help they can get and build, keep building friendships. And I know it's tough when you're getting burned uh, you know, nobody wants to go back to the well once you've you've tasted the bitter water, but they've got to. You know, they, they can't do it solely on their own, and uh, that's where it has to start. To the American people, I I really wish they could fully understand what's going on in Afghanistan, not just the 400 people on my Facebook feed, which is private and closed, who hear me ranting about Afghanistan all the time and followed the articles for, for 20 years and know what's going on. But the rest of America, you know, get educated, sit down with Afghan veterans, um, pick up a good book on Afghanistan and learn about it and understand why this is so important to the veterans. And I just threw threw something on um, LinkedIn the other day about this cohort being unlike any cohort has ever come around. We've never had a 20 year war that's a cohort of people who repeatedly went back and served in that 20 year, literally grew up there, you know. I think Tito, who put the conference on, had like nine or 12 tours. He grew up in Afghanistan. That was his, that's, that was his playground, you know, from, from 18 to, to father, you know, he was, he was growing up there. And I think the American people need to fully understand where our veterans are at so they can help them. Uh, and I hope Americans would get involved. We have the money and resources and the time. Uh, there are ways they can help, whether it's helping with the refugees right now and getting them resettled and getting them jobs because Afghans love to work and they love to get educated, you know, help them get jobs and get into school and, and get, get their dreams followed. They'll do it. Afghans are amazing human beings to the policymakers and elected officials. I, I think we, we have got to take some reckoning uh, on what we did quickly 
you know, just admit some failures and figure out the next steps, you know, literally sit down and utter the word Afghanistan in, in DC and, and let the chips fall where they may. Some people might not want to talk about it, but before we get another September 11th, let's really look at what's going on over there and let's figure out a plan uh, to help Afghans avoid that because they're going to have to do it, but we can help. You know, we have the tools, the resources. We've shown that there's a, there's a collaborative group around the globe that will help uh, get it done <laughs> in ways that governments can't sometimes. It can be done, uh, but we have to admit we've made some mistakes and let's move on from them. We can't just sit around and pretend there's no issues. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how you do that as a policymaker, an elected leader. You have to be able to take a little bit of ownership and then move on and figure out the next steps and build the team and build the strategy and do it. If you can't do that, you should not be making policy. That's your job. Yeah, really good, man. How do people uh, stay connected to you and, and follow your work, Jason? Uh, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn the most. Um, my, my other social media stuff's kind of just family and friends. So uh, Twitter is probably where you'll find me the most. Either uh, it's, it's Jason Chris Hauk or Jason C. Hauk on Twitter. Um, and then there's a GFA feed on Twitter as well. On LinkedIn, again, my name or uh, the Global Friends of Afghanistan feed. That's where we put a lot of the information what's going on. Uh, and that's where um, you can probably find ways to help if you're inclined to do so. Yeah, right on. And uh, please check out Global Friends of Afghanistan and uh, U.S. War Options in Afghanistan. You got You got to read this. I mean, you talk about a good book on Afghanistan, great book on Afghanistan by a man who's lived it at every level and, and even lets you make decisions as you think through this. It's 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 amazing. Uh, listen, Jason, I'm just, I'm humbled to have had this time with you. I mean, I knew it was going to be incredible, but your perspective and your level-headedness and the way that you've maintained your fidelity and loyalty to the Afghan people and the veteran population, frankly, and stood up for them. Uh, I just think it's, it's just, it's just amazing. And I, I am truly in awe of your work and, and I hope that you take care of yourself and that you let us take care of you on occasion too. And, uh, that you just, you know, Thank you for what you're doing, man, because it really it really is um, amazing and, and very, very much appreciated uh, by those of us who are still in the game and, and just trying to do the best we can. And you really you really give us uh, something to hang our hat on and, and follow. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And I appreciate all you're doing to educate and to speak about this and and do take care of yourself as well. And next time I'm down in Florida or you're in North Carolina, uh, we'll link up for a cool beverage. All right. <laughs> You got it, pal. All right, everybody. Thanks uh, for to all our rooftop listeners. Thanks for listening. Uh, if this, you found this useful, please rate it. Go in there and rate it. Share it with someone uh, who could benefit from it. We're building this thing organically and get it out there because we, we really need to keep Afghanistan top of mind. Thanks for what you do, and I'll see you on the rooftop. Uh -huh.